spotlighting Hawaii's leaders. We want to bring in Governor David E. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Mayor Derek Kawakami. Thank you so much, uh, Senator, for being here. Spotlighting the issues. Where is the virus right now in our community? How much is this overall going to cost the state? How are you responding to the community's concerns? Talk about the level of citations that you guys are writing. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei Suji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs. Well, aloha. Thank you so much for joining us here on Spotlight Hawaii on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. I'm Yenji Denise, joined by Ryan Kalei Suji. Ryan, on Monday, we talked a lot about the variety of races that are going on right now, heading up, leading up to the August 13th primary. Yesterday was the filing deadline. We now know everyone who is running in all of the many races. Today, we are shining a spotlight on a candidate running for lieutenant governor. Yeah, it is a field that has a number of candidates. And joining us this morning is State Representative Sylvia Luke to give us an update on how the campaigning is going. Good morning. Uh, great to see you. And thanks for joining us again. Good morning, Yenji. And good morning, Ryan. Thank you for inviting me again. And it's a great opportunity to not just chat with you, but the audience out there. This is really um terrific that you know you folks put on this show and we enjoy watching it all the time well we appreciate you coming on want to get an update on how things are going on the campaign it's been a few months of course since you've announced uh you officially filed with the filing deadline yesterday your thoughts about the momentum and the way the campaign has been uh, unfolding for you thus far I had an opportunity to meet with many of the community members around the state. Uh, you know, I met with Moloka'i um, homestead uh, individuals and many of the issues, including um, their struggle with access deer, um, herding ranchers. We were able to talk to many of the residents in uh, on the Big Island, including um, Hilo ranchers and farmers, uh, issues in Lapahoihoi, um, Pihonua. Um, I think that's the most fun part about the campaign. Uh, it's really going out into the community, meeting with people, meeting with people in Waimea, Kauai, and also Waimea on the Big Island, and just learning um, more about many of the issues that impact them and how we can bring those issues, bring those community concerns, and make them into action at the state level. You know, we're very familiar with you and all of your work at the legislature for many years now. You had a you know, pretty powerful position. Why did you decide that now is the time to step away from that and take on this statewide position? One of the things I learned is as a legislator, you are you can you can actually um, pass laws, but that's where really things stop. So you pass laws and a lot of times uh, it's really the implementation and execution that uh, that need the help to bring some of these things to reality. About two years ago, we passed a law saying we will we will start building more preschool seats so that every three and four year olds would have access to preschool. Um, clearly, COVID had a had an issue with with that being implemented. But one of the things I learned, especially during COVID, is that you need strong executive branch and strong leadership to implement many of the things that I helped pass, including preschool, broadband, affordable housing. So I'm excited to take on this challenge just to get things done for many of the issues within the community. You know, this has been your first session since uh, announcing that you're seeking a higher office, but also having to manage your role as a state legislature and leader uh, of your majority party within the House. 
Uh, did that change at all your thought process about considering some of these bills, knowing that you would be moving potentially into a, a position, a higher position, uh, you know, on the fifth floor, knowing that some of the policies that you pass through this session may ultimately impact you in your role if elected in lieutenant governor? So many of the issues that we passed this year and uh, the benefit that we had this year was the substantial amount of revenues that initially the state did not anticipate. So we've been talking about preschool access, we've been talking about broadband expansion, we've been talking about affordable housing, and we, we made incremental steps to make gains in those areas. But this year was a year where we we were able to invest substantial amount of monies into those areas, including $200 million for preschool. If there's, if there's one thing that really stuck out this year is really to take care of many of the Native Hawaiian issues. And I know Governor Wahey and others called this a billion dollar year, and it was truly a billion plus dollar year to benefit Native Hawaiian beneficiaries. But those are issues that have, uh, come up year after year and we've been trying to address it. So I'm very um, thankful that I was able to close out this legislative year with huge amount of investments and regardless of who's in the legislature, who's in the executive, I think uh, with my help and with my role, we put the state in a really good position to make gains in many of these issues. You know, we've talked before about how the lieutenant governor doesn't really have a formal uh, formal set of powers. It really is a job that you make it. What do you think in your specific skill set you would bring and how do you see this office and, and how do you see the relationship between the lieutenant governor and the governor? Because we know that that really depends on the personalities who are in those two seats. Mm -hmm. The lieutenant governor's uh, role is something that is undefined other than just few roles, including name change and others that the um, uh, also regulatory issues that the Lieutenant Governor's role is, is um, given, but that provides a huge opportunity for in the, the person to be in that seat to make the best use of it. I always felt that the lieutenant governor's role is really underutilized. And when you look at the lieutenant governor, it is really the lieutenant, the person who helps the governor, the person who helps the state in getting things done. That's why I feel that I bring a different skill set only because of my experience and my depth of knowledge from how state government works, where some of the challenges are, where some of the barriers are, how can we get some of the issues passed through the legislature? How do we touch upon many of the communities that we have been able to help and bringing all that together and bringing my experience as a legislator, knowing how state government works, knowing what are some of the issues are and making that a reality and making that some of the things that I can help the governor to succeed. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's a different skill set than anybody brings. I am planning to be a workhorse in this in this position, I think just like when I was a finance chair, I really redefined what the finance chair does. And I'm planning to redefine the LG's role. So after hopefully if I get elected, LG will be seen as somebody who will work hard just to help government function and how government can operate and how government can manage and help the governor in all those areas. 
and in talking more about the position and what you would like it to become, one of the things that we also realized with this position is that the funding as well will have to be approved by the legislature. The office of the lieutenant governor will have to put together their budget presented to the finance chairs. You've sat on the other side of that table uh, while lieutenant governors who sat in that office on the fifth floor have had to come to you and mm -hmm. ask you for funding uh, and at times have been questioned by members of the finance committee uh, as to how they would spend this. And, and there was at times some pushback by the legislature uh, on the role of the LG's office. How, do you, how confident are you that you'll be able to achieve some of the things that you want to turn this position into, knowing some of the restraints that some of your fellow law, former lawmakers may have about funding some of the increasing the funding in this office. So um, right now, uh, you, I think that Lieutenant Governor's position and the office is fully funded. Um, so we're not really looking at adding more position. We need to really best use the positions we have and. The lieutenant governor has several staff and several um, people in um, the office, and we can best utilize that office to do many of the work that I've talked about, whether it's pre-K expansion, broadband access to many of the rural communities, building up more affordable housing. You don't really need more staff to do those things. It's really about coordination. It's bringing individuals, departments together. A lot of times, sometimes departments, um, there's a disconnect between communication and it's really trying to understand when one department's view and role and having another department understand it. It's similar to when we, uh, when I helped set up the unemployment satellite office, it was to bring in five departments and see if we can have a, coordinated effort to have the best result for the constituents. You know, looking at this field, as Ryan noted right off the top, it is rather crowded. What do you think makes you different than the other candidates who are running? It is really the depth of knowledge of state government because the lieutenant governor's role is undefined. When you become a lieutenant governor, no one's going to help you. No one's going to tell you, okay, these are the things you should do because the governor will be really busy setting up the cabinet, really busy trying to get the, the various department heads go through the confirmation process. The first two years will be really busy for the governor because it's, it's a huge learning curve for many of the departments as well. And the legislature will be busy. The legislature will be already setting up priorities as soon as the election is over. The lieutenant governor cannot wait around and wait for someone to tell the person what to do. What I bring to the table, unlike anyone else, it's a smaller learning curve. It's knowing how state government works, knowing where some of the issues that need to be resolved need to be done. For instance, there are many issues like the DHHL wait list. We just provided $600 million to DHHL to tackle the wait list. You don't have to wait for the legislature to come back or the governor to set the budget. We can already start working with DHHL to refine how to spend that money because that's a law that I helped pass. And I have some ideas on how that should be done. We've been already talking to the Native Hawaiian community members. We've been already talking to DHHL. So I look forward to just having an opportunity to get to work because there's so many things that we need to do. You know, we always like bringing in questions here, and this is a kind of a two-part question, so we'll tackle this uh, a little differently. But could you please ask her about her stance on large housing construction projects that are not affordable during our water crisis? So let's tackle this affordable housing and construction projects 
first, uh, of course, she's noting to the water crisis that what we've experienced due to Red Hill. Uh, but with large construction projects and the whole concept of affordable housing, uh, what are some of your thoughts about improving some of these conditions and increasing the number of affordable housing available to residents right now? According to the last budget department's analysis, we need about 38,000 more units. In order to make home prices affordable, we need to increase the number of units that are available. The way that we can achieve that is, of course, one way is really DHHL waitlist, because at least if we're building affordable units for people on the waitlist, then at least we're dealing with individuals who are residents of Hawaii. The second thing is we invested about $300 million to build affordable rentals. This is the uh, single largest amount that we set aside. So that's not um, just for individuals who are low income, but we're really tackling those individuals who are um, middle income and the workforce housing needs that we really need. So in addition to doing workforce rentals, um, the HHL waitlist. The other thing is we, we have to work closely with the counties to make sure that they go after short-term rentals and they need to have better management of short-term rentals. I congratulate the city and county of Honolulu and the mayor for passing a recent short-term rentals restriction. And that's something that we can work closely with to make sure that we increase the inventory for our local residents. You know what, the, let's take the second half of Heidi's question, just talking about the water crisis that Oahu is facing and the state really overall, because of the drought, we have the Red Hill sort of uh, situation exacerbating uh, what is happening naturally with just not getting enough rain. Uh, what are your thoughts on how we manage this water crisis, particularly on Oahu and trying to make sure that the Navy does what it says it's going to do when it comes to Red Hill and then more broadly about water water resources across the state? We have made it very clear that the Navy has to comply to not just what is required by the federal government, but by the Department of Health's mandate. And we will continue to push to make sure that the Red Hill fuel tank is decommissioned and the, the fuel tank is safely, it's safe. Um, safely moved. The fuel in the fuel tank is safely moved. I think it's going to be a long process. I think we need to continue to hold the Navy accountable. We need to hold the federal government accountable for some of the contamination in water. It's not just happening in the um, close to where the fuel tank is, but it's being felt all over, including Iroquois Point. And this is a huge concern. The other concern for uh, water issues is really about um, working with the counties to make sure that when they allow for permitting of homes, they need to make sure that there's infrastructure. There's infrastructure in sewage, there's infrastructure in uh, utilities. I think one of the, uh, the challenges over the years have been the lack of infrastructure, which, re which result in either lack of housing developments or home ownership developments or the, um, the, I, I think it's really, you know, stalling out having more developments or more affordable developments. The cost of infrastructure adds about $200,000 more to a home. So I think that's something that we can work with the counties about. Another issue and topic uh, that will be discussed during this election season is the future of Mauna Kea. 
Uh, we know that the legislature has taken steps to redefine some of the management of how that's taken care of, but more specifically about the 30 meter telescope and its future. Uh, what are your thoughts about that telescope uh, on the mountain? Do you support the construction of the 30 meter telescope? And what do you think the future of astronomy on Mauna Kea looks like? So this year, uh... This year really was about the recognition of Native Hawaiian voices and many of the issues. And the Mauna Kea management bill that we just passed recognizes the importance of including Native Hawaiian voices in the construction of TMT and other, other telescopes on the Mauna. What is significant is this allows for continuation of astronomy and many of the people in the working group, including many of, including some of the people who protested on the Mauna, agreed that it's not so much the, the prohibition against TMT, it's about coming together and finding a solution. So the new management team and the discussion around the new management gives an opportunity for Native Hawaiian voices and Native Hawaiian individuals to come to the table and have a discussion with astronomy. So I look forward to those discussions as well. I think it is going to take time for the implementation of the management team, but I have a lot of faith in the discussions that, that have already happened because that, that discussion and coming together has not happened in the past. You know, one of the things the executive branch uh, currently has been facing is the COVID restriction question and whether or not to bring back mass mandates. We know that Governor Ige, um, you know, was one of the most conservative governors in the country when it comes mm -hmm. to gathering sizes and keeping that indoor mask made, I mandate, I believe, longer than any other municipality. What are your thoughts on COVID restrictions going forward? We currently are having some of the highest numbers we've ever had, and yet we don't have those restrictions in place other than in schools, which some parents are pretty upset about. So do you think that we should bring back more mandates or how do we get our numbers uh, under better control? Are you comfortable with where we are right now? Even if our numbers are high, what we are looking at is whether the hospitalization rate is just as high. So at the height of when the numbers were high, our hospitalization rate was about three times or more compared to what it is now. That shows that the virus has transformed and um, become less, less um, deadly or less, um, uh, I guess, you know, it became more contagious, but at the same time, it's not as uh, deadly anymore. So what we want to do is ensure that the hospitalization and then the mortality rate goes down. I think we are at the point where the virus has morphed itself into something um, less deadly, hopefully. We are continuing to watch those numbers. Um, I think the mandates, the, the days of mandates are um, behind us only because even without the mandate, people are being responsible when you go to the malls or when you're going to restaurants. People who feel sick are avoiding crowded places and people who feel that, hey, you know, you need to take care of yourselves more, that you are putting on masks. So even without the mandates, um, the people in Hawaii have responded and they continue to mask up and they continue to wash their hands and they continue to distance. So I think it's really kudos and it's really about 
how Hawaii is different in that we take care of each other and we care for each other and we care for our elderly and without the even without the mandates, those significant things are continuing. So that's something that we should all be proud of. We are, though, seeing that there is, of course, an uptick in cases. And when that happens, uh, the labor industry is impacted, just whether it be from restaurants to hotels. And we're just seeing a shortage at times uh, with some of these businesses because of the amount of people that are calling in sick. Uh, when we speak specifically about the hospitality industry and the number of visitors that are projected to come to our shores this summer, uh, how do you think that where we at where we are right now with COVID-19 uh, and with this surge of travel that is expected to come, uh, are you confident and comfortable about managing uh, the tourism industry and being able to provide some of the services that are needed to uh, keep most of these businesses operational with uh, amidst what's happening with COVID-19? The interesting thing is that recently HTA has shifted their plan as well. So instead of going with the traditional HVCB uh, contract, they have now given that contract for marketing and management to a Native Hawaiian nonprofit. I think that uh, was a welcome to many of the residents who have been calling for management of tourism uh, for a long, long time. Uh, let's look at Kauai. For instance, Kauai has not only hit pre-COVID level for tourism arrival, it surpassed pre-COVID level. So I think there uh, is a growing number of concern among Kauai residents about, okay, how many more tourists can this island accommodate or um, handle? So there's discussion there. Even the fact that Maui um, County Council have um, talked about or has passed prohibition against building more hotels, clearly there's there's dissatisfaction among individuals uh, about the the number of tourists. We are hitting the pre-COVID numbers. I mean, pre-COVID tourism arrival numbers, but we haven't even seen the arrival of Asian tourists yet. So. Um, you know, we need to work really closely with HTA about how we better manage tourism. I think uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, we have talked about is really about parks management. It comes in incremental steps, right? Parks management, what do we do to ensure that the, the state parks are not just for use for tourists, but really used for the enjoyment of locals as well. So the great example is on Hyena, on Kauai where they restricted uh, access and you can only access by uh, a shuttle, you can only access by a reservation system. And so people are even tourists and residents alike, they're enjoying that experience a lot more. We can mimic and um, really migrate that system throughout the entire state. And that's what we're planning to do with the parks division of the state. I want to ask you, uh, just on the personal side, you know, we know a lot about your experience as a lawmaker, but what would you like people to know about you on the personal side? Uh, something that they might not know, perhaps a hobby, how you, you know, how you relax on the weekends, how you like to spend your time or any of your backstory that you'd like to share. Uh, I, you know, one of the things I tell people um, and they said, I never knew that is I was actually born in South Korea. I um, came here when I was nine years old and didn't speak a word of English. And a, a fifth grade teacher sat me down and taught me English after school. And 
um, seven years later, unfortunately, my dad passed away and it was really the, the community at church and it was um, my um, friends and teachers at school that helped us, helped me become who I am. And that made me have a better appreciation of really taking care of each other, coming to the aid of each other. And I think that that has led me into public service. Having gone through some of the challenges in my early years and having to overcome that, I look at every challenge as an opportunity to give back to the community and really um, improve the lives of everyone here. As our time winds down, we do want to allow you uh, one final opportunity to uh, end with a statement or something that you would like to tell the viewers out there and voters uh, who are considering this race and still haven't made up their mind about who their candidate is. Uh, your final message for viewers this morning. Yanji and Ryan, thank you for this opportunity and thank you to everyone for tuning in. I'm using my experience as a legislator, bring those experiences and working with the community to bridge that gap and bridge, become the bridge to the governor. And I'm planning to work really hard to ensure that we have more affordable housing, preschool for many of the individuals who cannot help uh, pay for preschool, increase broadband and deal with many of the issues like homeless and many others out there. It's the experience that I bring and the knowledge of how state government works that separates me from many of the candidates out there. And I hope that you will allow me the opportunity to work really hard for you. Okay, Sylvia Luke, Representative Sylvia Luke, House Finance Chair and now candidate for Lieutenant Governor. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, Ryan, you heard her hammer that at the beginning and the end, just how much of a workhorse she plans to be in this role. She sees this really as a bridge to the to the legislature uh, between the executive branch and the legislative branch. Uh, one thing that she continues to highlight is that you know, in the very beginning, the governor will be busy, she says, for those first two years, creating his cabinet and, you know, sort of tackling some of the big issues while the legislature will be moving forward with all of its own agenda. And she sees the lieutenant governor as the person who will take all of the laws of, that have been passed in the last session and helping to really implement them so that the rubber meets the road. When she talked about her motivation for running, she said, you know, we in the legislature, you can pass the bills, but whether or not those actually come to pass uh, in the day-to-day -day lives of everyday uh, local folks uh, is really up to the executive branch. And that's where she sees her strength. And we heard from her throughout the interview, um, making references to some of the things that they were able to do through the legislative session. Of course, her role in leading up that finance committee and understanding the state budget in that sense uh, was able to provide some key figures, especially when she talked about the uh, development as well as the investment, I should say, into the Native Hawaiian community uh, through various means, whether it be through housing uh, and, and other points. And she also talked about Mauna Kea and providing more access for Native Hawaiian voices there. Um, you know, really saying and making a point to highlight her legislative experience, especially for this role and how she sees that tying together. Yeah, and moving forward, she says that she hopes the days of mandates are behind us and that we manage COVID in a different way. And when it talks about managing tourism, looking at the Kauai model of perhaps restricting access to certain uh, areas, we've seen this duplicated uh, throughout the state now. If you look at Diamond Head and having to make reservations, let's say on Haleakala and other venues that are very popular among tourists and residents, making sure that residents do have access and that these areas are not overrun. She also commended the city council uh, 
uh, for passing restrictions on illegal vacation rentals. Uh, so you hear there some of the tones uh, on tourism. So we covered a lot of issues. If you missed any of this, of course, you can go right back to the beginning at the end of this uh, broadcast, or you can listen to it later as a podcast or catch it on Channel 50. We rebroadcast it a few times before the next show. But uh, very interesting to hear from her. And we are about two months away from when people will be filling out those ballots and mailing them in. Yeah, and we also want to just highlight that we have uh, interviewed the other candidates for this position uh, for the lieutenant governor's role. Uh, and so if you've missed any of the other candidates that we've already spoken to, uh, that include Ikaika Anderson, uh, as well as Sherry Manor McNamara, we have had these uh, conversations with them already. So uh, we will also be speaking with Keith Amomia uh, in the coming weeks. And so if you want to get a better gauge about where these candidates stand on certain positions, feel free to go back uh, and take a look at some of our archived shows to get a better glimpse of these candidates uh, and, and intimately know them a little bit more and the way that they answered some of these questions. That's right. And on Friday, we're going to be switching gears and talking about teen mental health. There's a mother and child who have created a new venue in Kaka'ako called Spill the Tea Cafe. It's a place for teens to gather. They offer therapy, individual and group, and just a safe space for teens who are navigating some really tough times post-pandemic. So we look forward to our conversation with the folks there, and we hope you'll join us right back here on Friday at 10.30. Aloha, we'll see you then. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Longstrugs.